Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the CX Cast. Today, I'm joined by two of my analyst colleagues who you have met before, Maxie Schmidt. Hey, Maxie. Hello there. And Joanna de Quintanilla. Hey, Joanna. Hi, everyone. So Joanna and Maxie agreed to join because they had both read a book, which we know many people, many CX leaders, CX pros have been reading or at least interested in. So we wanted to take a look ourselves. It's called Winning on Purpose by Fred Reichelt. So we wanted to investigate this ourselves. And of course, Maxie and Joanna, being the experts in CX that they are, are going to, well, we'll see. Are they going to give a strong recommendation on this or are they going to say that they already knew everything that was in this book? I guess we'll find out in a few minutes. So Maxie, let's start with you. Can you just tell us what this book is about? So I think that the book's very interesting. In my perspective, it has three big points it makes. Like the first is that it is a call to action that. The purpose of an organization is to love their customers and enrich customers' lives. Fred Reichel chose a lot of examples why, about how doing the right thing leads to better business results, right? But it's kind of the call to action, that purpose thing. The second thing is that it's doubling down on net promoter score as a measure of whether we are able to enrich customers' lives, but calls out a lot of issues with implementing net promoter score. Like he says uh, a really interesting quote. Um, he says, while I'm pleased that so many companies have embraced NPS, I'm deeply troubled how badly most of them are implementing it. And too many practitioners are corrupting NPS by making the score the target rather than a measure that inspires learning and growth, which resonates a lot with me and probably also with a lot of the audience, because that's exactly the problem with NPS, right? We don't implement it well and we focus on the score. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is that complements NPS with a financial metric. Uh, it's called earned growth. So it's a metric that helps us understand how much of the business that a company gets is earned, which is good, versus bought, which is not good. And that's a metric that's meant to be complementing Net Promoter Score as a financial metric. Adriana, anything that, that, that else that I'm forgetting? No, I think I agree with that. So one of the things that I thought was very interesting about the book is indeed sort of how companies use and misuse Net Promoter Score. With any metric, it's about how you apply it within the organization. So I think there's some great examples of good use and misuse of Net Promoter Score in the book. I like the fact that he also argues very much for the need, of course, to focus on employees an employee experience. So while he, uh, as you as you said, uh, the purpose of each company should be to enrich the lives of customers, he also thinks of um, businesses as being a place, of course, that need to create an, insp- an inspirational place for employees to work, right? So, you know, you cannot love your customers without creating inspired and committed teams who share that purpose. And he goes into quite a lot of detail of how you create that within an organization, which I think is very interesting. I'd also echo all of that and say that I think he does flow pretty seamlessly between talking about the customer experience and the employee experience, and you get that sense of connection. And this is, of course, built on a couple other books that he has already written on the net promoter system. So perhaps he doesn't spend, maybe this is for the best, as much time talking about what net promoter system is and the benefits of it. But what what are some of those themes that you pulled out from this as you were going through the book? Jana, let's start with you. Sure. So one of the things that jumped out at me was how he talks about building strategy and norms and rituals around this philosophy of enriching 
customers' lives, right? It has to be more than just a statement. It really needs to be embedded within the organization. And so I think that that's very interesting. He gives a lot of examples of that. That's a really key theme. The other thing, the other key theme that comes through is that, um, so he talks a lot about having leaders embrace the golden rule approach, right? Love thy neighbor and fostering this culture that embraces a long game. Right. So he does point out that when companies are too focused on the short term and short term gains, it becomes difficult to uphold this philosophy. And I think that that's an interesting theme. Another interesting theme that came through for me is this idea of unleashing net promoter score feedback flows. Right. So you've got to make sure you've got to give employees throughout an organization specific feedback from Net Promoter Score relevant to their improvements on a timely basis, at the right time, at the right place, so that you can continuously innovate and collect and curate the right feedback. And I think that that is something you've got to put some discipline around because otherwise, again, you end up finding yourself in a situation where you're maybe misusing the metric. So this idea that you're continuously improving customer experiences, pursuing innovation. So using that promoter score to pursue innovation, which I think is something that maybe is a, is a connection that some companies have made a little bit, not quite made quite so strongly. So I think that those are some of the themes that jumped out for me. Maxi, would you add others to that? Yeah, I thought that it was really interesting. What a strong case he made for staying away from bad profits. And bad profits are addictive, he says. So bad profits is everything that has to do with extracting value from customer through bad fees or higher prices than, than fair. And he has, interestingly, a, a lot of examples of companies who have not done that, who have stayed away from bad profits, or have moved away from bad profits, including Discover, credit cards, that doesn't do that Schwab, who I think he said that somewhat a quarter of the, their revenue came from these bad behaviors at some point, and they did away with it. And he showed that these companies are very successful despite that, right? Because in many cases, I think in, in the customer experience, person will face people internally who say, no, we can't get rid of these fees. They're really important for our profitability. But these fees, while important for the profitability, are in the long run hampering customer relationships and they're making customers less likely to stay in the long run. So it's not, it's, as you said, right, it's not playing the long game. And that's what I thought was really interesting. Another thing that I thought was interesting is that he quotes a Bain study that only 10% of companies think that the purpose of the company is to create value for customers. And we find something similar at Forrester. Like when we look at uh, metrics, uh, for example, in the B2B dashboards, about 30% of metrics are about value for customer and the buyer, and the rest is about value for the company. So there's still not that idea that if I create value for customer, the value for business will just follow, which is something that Forrester have been doubling down on trying to explain that that's actually the case, right? Create value for your customers, they will come back and bring their friends and make the company more successful. The last two topics I mentioned is that he calls for what he calls customer-based accounting. That's in the context for earned growth, right? Which is... Customer-based accounting means that you need to understand really well what costs and revenues are associated with an individual customer. And this has always been a huge problem for people in customer experience. Without that information, they can't make a business case. But they didn't have that information, right? <laughs> they were expected to make a business case without that information. And now maybe maybe this coming from Fred Reichelt will have um, more effect on the executives to try to get more of that information about their customers so that they can make better decisions about how to serve them and why it makes sense to uh, play the long game. And so that second of those two topics I mentioned, I wanted to still add was 
that he does really call out a lot of NPS bad practices, which I think is really exciting for people in CX who are exposed to these bad, pra bad practices and are maybe frustrated by them. Because again, if Fred Reichel calls these things out, that's really huge, right? He's, for example, very outspoken against tying NPS to any kind of bonus. He's even outspoken against sales commissions, which is like, ooh, all the way out there, right? But I'm hoping that some of these arguments can help people in customer experience make the case that have so far tried, but maybe not been successful. Maxi, I knew it was going to resonate with you when he devoted quite a bit of time to not linking <laughs> metrics directly to compensation. Yes. <laughs> I was like, so actually, I drew little hearts in the margin. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> No, and I, I also appreciate that he had a call to action, not just for CX leaders, but also CFOs, shareholders. If we're talking about doing accounting right for the customer and for customer goals, then there's a lot of players that influence that. And it's not just the CX team that can make that big change in an organization. So that was realistic. And yeah, he was also pretty humble about how Things aren't always going perfectly. He even gave some of the history of um, trial and failure at Bain to get NPS right. So I love that you pulled out, you know, the fact that there's ammunition for CX leaders to say, hey, here's how I can make the business case. Anything else, Maxi, that you found particularly interesting from this book? I'll mention two things. The first was that I really liked how Fred Reichel described the golden rule. Because many of us say that the golden rule is you, you do to the other person what you'd want to be done to yourself, which is, of course, not great, right? Because if you like chocolate and the other person doesn't, why give that other person chocolate? It doesn't make sense, right? Then people say, oh, the golden rule is about doing what the other person wants. But then um, the example that also he mentions is that if the other person is a bully, then why give that person <laughs> what he wants, right? So he redefines the golden rule to do what makes the other person better, what preserves your own dignity and what helps the community become better. And I just think that we all need to be thinking about broader, like as a rule to how you want to live. I think that's a really nice interpretation of the golden rule and kind of goes in hand with this book being a bit of a reflection. It seems like Fred Reichel was very reflecting on his own career and on what made him tick and um, how he's changed also from being very, very like a numbers driven. NPS is important because loyalty gets money to know this is really about enriching lives, right? And that's also the second point that I find interesting is that Fred Weichelt kind of admits that he stopped at 60% when he did the first time around the NPS. Like, I think he says even he wanted to call it the net lives enriched score, but then didn't do that because he felt that that would be too out there and business people wouldn't adopt it. And I think he's right. <laughs> he, he does reflect on the fact that he might have done the professional disservice by not really pushing all the way for the idea that a purpose of an organization is to love their customers and enrich their lives. Jonna, what did you think about that point? I agree with that with that last one. I think that one of the the interesting things about the book is, you know, there's a little bit of soul searching, I think, that um that that he does in the book. And indeed, you know, he sort of asks himself, you know, maybe the customer-centric business movement would have advanced faster if I had taken a bolder stand and that indeed focused more on the human net worth versus the financial net worth. And I think that that's a good question for CX professionals to be asking themselves as well. Like, are you making a strong enough stand? Do you need to 
be bolder. If we want to advance customer centricity, um, do we need to go further than we have done before in terms of value creation versus value extraction? So I think that that was fascinating. I do, of course, a lot of research on emotion. And so um, I think there were some fascinating things sort of through my emotion lens that I saw in, in this book, the idea of leading with love, which he talks about, which is a pretty unusual thing if you think about it in a business sort of setting to be talking about leading with love. You know, he shares a wonderful example of uh, Caliber, which is a chain of auto body shops and their mission statement, which is all about sort of this love for customer, right? They really understand the customer situation when they arrive uh, at this auto body shop, right? When they come to us, their lives have been disrupted. They've had an accident. It's a distressing ordeal. So their purpose is all about helping each customer get their their life back in order. So restoring the rhythm of their lives. And so he's got, the book has got wonderful, wonderful examples. I think that's probably the thing that's sort of struck me the most is um, how many examples this book has uh, about leading with love, about doing the right thing for the customer. He, of course, quotes a lot of examples from Bain as well, right? And from the things that Bain has implemented. He talks, for instance, about the Bain huddles that rather than being focused on sales targets are really focused on things like how to tackle a tricky client situation or how to protect your team from uh, burnout, how to make sure that they have that there's sustainability of the workload. And then to prepare for those huddles, there's a survey that's emailed the day before and leadership actually reaches out to the leaders of struggling teams to offer help and support, to help those teams get out of trouble, right? To improve rather than being punitive about the results that they're seeing. So there's examples like that that are, they're really, he brings those examples to life in a, in a, in a very, in a very nice way. Um, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, sort of ammunition there for companies that are looking for best practices, that are looking for examples to share within their own organizations that I think are, yeah, are, are make this book a very interesting read. Right. And, and on the note of those examples, I know that you were also struck by it. But some of these examples are so interesting because they help us just get a different idea. He, for example, brings up the airline, Qatar Airlines, right? And he brings up that, have you ever been in an airline where the person, either the person next to you was greeted really nicely as a frequent flyer? Oh, dear Mr. So-and-so, so glad to have you on board and you get totally ignored. Or you're that person and the people next to you get totally ignored. I think both situations are really awkward, but airlines are trying to somehow honor their frequent flyers. So in the case of that airline, what they did is actually they brought some chocolate to the frequent flyer and then gave the people around the frequent flyer also chocolate. I mean, just just some small examples like that that can be inspiring that we can can use to, to, to think about differently about what we can do as companies to be more customer or human-centric. Mm -hmm. And even like related to that example as well. So he gives a, a great example of how uh, one company really shared with their employees what the lifetime value is of frequent flyers, right? So we often sort of, you know, we, we, we talk about high value customers, but do we bring that to life for our employees so that they actually know what that means, right? So there's wonderful examples like that, that it just goes, it goes sort of like that extra step in bringing to life certain things and best practices within organizations that make 
all the difference in terms of actually truly being a customer-centric company because the devil's in the detail. And so there's some wonderful details there, I think, that will help a lot of organizations. He talks a lot about also the importance of persistence, right? Systems, processes that help teams to, to battle and succeed against prevailing currents that are really pushing them to act in non-customer-centric ways. So how do you design routines, culture, uh, culture symbols, rituals? Um, I think that those are things that I think a lot of companies or a lot of CX professionals will appreciate reading. And, and so the richness of the examples together with that, I think, makes it a, uh, yeah, a, a good read. Yeah. And I, I also appreciate that he gives these examples and then he stands by those brands as examples by showing their profitability by he even, I think, himself invests in a lot of these brands that he gives examples of. So while he is talking about leading with love and focusing on customer centricity, he still makes that connection to the profitability that comes with customer loyalty, real customer loyalty. Right. And that's also interesting because he, he makes the point that in an industry, only one or two companies can be leaders. <laughs> and uh, he sorts the companies in the industry by the net promoter score and then shows the stock market returns. Yeah. And also, I think that two or three times he explains how um, how good that was for his personal finances that he invested in those companies. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, this should have done that too. <laughs> so far, I'm hearing positive things, but... Max, I'll start with you. What was your overall take on the book? I must say I'm biased right? because it aligns so much with what I believe. That profit orientation with the short-term orientation of much of the corporate world. I was like, oh, finally, somebody's saying these things. So I was I was really excited about it. And because I hope that that there is that he has he has some influence. The thing that I I've been wondering about is that the brands he mentioned are is very are very specific, right? He mentions brands like Chick-fil-A, like Discover, like Apple. Then I'm thinking, okay, how do other companies do this? So what can other people and other companies learn from this? What do you do if, if you're a customer experience professional who does not work in a company where love for customer, enriching customers' lives is the motto? Could you quit your job and, and, and all try to move to some of those outstanding companies? How, how can you get your company to embrace this if, if they're not already in that mindset? And I, I don't think that he gave advice for that. I think some of the points that he makes could probably be used for that, but that was the book was a bit light on that. And I think, unfortunately, much of the people who work in CX do work in companies that maybe say they want to enrich customers' lives, but don't mean it or don't act like that. And then the other thing is that the earned growth metric seems really interesting, but super hard to implement. So I think it's the earned growth metrics going to probably end up more like a like an instrument to get people to think about the idea of a customer-based accounting and understanding how much of our growth do we earn through good experiences and value for customers versus of how much of the growth we buy through marketing. But um, it's 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 hard. And if anybody's interested in listening or reading more about that, there's a blog that we can link to in the in the show notes where I talk a little bit about the pros and cons of this earned growth metric. Because I think it's going to be a good thing, but most companies won't be able to implement it. Yeah, and I, I'd agree with that. I think that it's uh, the, the book is a bit of a wake-up call, but I think it may still feel unattainable for some companies that um, have maybe more of a diverse customer base 
don't have the luxury of, you know, the likes of USAA that have a very defined customer base, for instance. That's one of the examples that he provides. I think he, he offers a, a, a whole array of different companies, right? So they're not all like USAA. So, you know, that, that would be sort of, you know, an unfair thing to say. But I think some of it might feel a little bit unattainable for some companies, depending on your culture, what your starting point is. But I'm hoping that... Um, that companies and, and CX professionals read this book and they too they they take away a couple of things, right? So, for instance, you know the 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 earned growth uh, metric that might be a difficult thing to compute. But I hope that they take away some of the specific metrics. For instance, he met, mentions in the book that you can start to measure things like what's your customer onboarding date, what's the primary reason for that customer joining, when does that customer become inactive, right? We might not be able to measure the things perfectly, but if we can start to think more clearly about some of these metrics, and he gives very specific examples, I think that we can start to make improvements. There's another theme that he raises that I think just, you know, it was, would have been probably too much to tackle in this book, but I think that requires more thought, which is, you know, emotion in the digital era, right? Like this idea of leading with love when we're having more and more experiences on digital channels. How do we do that, right? How do we continue to do that? There's some very interesting questions there. He also raises some questions about, you know, combining that promoter score and, and other metrics with real-time measurements, which is something that I spend a lot of time sort of thinking about and doing research about. So how do you start combining real-time analytics and that promoter score um, and really use that to um, yeah to drive experiences within the organization. So some wonderful ideas. I think it might feel a little bit unattainable for some companies, but I'm hoping that there's enough specificity in some of the examples in there that people will still take away some some great best practices that who knows might actually sort of, you know, go a little bit further in terms of pushing customer centricity. And also it talks very well about what the role of a customer experience uh, team even could be, right? Uh, it's not to get the whole organization bought into customer experience and then you can dissolve yourself, but it is to keep up with the many changes an organization is going through. You're adopting a new measurement system, a new performance management system, new technology, new this, new that. There's changes all the time, right? How does it keep up and keep an organization customer focused when you continuously have these changes? New people come in that don't have the same commitment. And that's really the interesting, also one interesting take for me is that the mission of a customer experience team should be to, to do that, right? to keep up with these changes, to make sure that everything new happens in the organization that happens in the organization is uh, still happens in a customer-centric way, which requires a mandate from top level. Yeah. And I think that that's why he also mentions what he calls, I think, the Jenny question. Um, so, you know, that we should also be asking customers, you know, is there anything we could have done to make your experience more exceptional in order to drive those rounds of what he calls macro and micro innovation? So it's an ongoing thing. It's not something, yeah, that indeed sort of we, you know, that, that reaches an, an, an end I'll tell you what the the most interesting thing that stood out for me, and then I'll hear from you guys. But when he was talking about uh, pure insurance as an example, first of all, I like how he naturally found this example. He got the insurance himself. He learned more about the policies. But in, insurance can be a really sticky customer experience. It can feel tough to change in that industry. And he calls out how a sim simple changes in policy really make a difference at Pure Insurance. So those who are loyal customers for five years actually get a decrease in their policy um, versus benefiting the new customer. So I thought 
an example like that had a lot of meaning, had a lot of inspiration for those, to your point, who may be feeling a little bit stuck. What can we change? A lot of folks we speak to think that the policies are fixed. They can't be changed, but it's not necessarily the case. So I think that stood out to me. Joanna, was there, was there one thing that was the most interesting thing to you that kind of stood out? Yeah, so there was one term um, that, or or one example that he shares, and I think it's from Tesla, that he mentions that they decided that they needed a communications program to expose what is happening behind the scenes for customers who are waiting, in some cases, a year for their model to be delivered. And we know that this is something that a lot of companies are going through at the moment. And so customers are sent emails with photos of the new line, for example, to reassure them that, of course, things are progressing. And he uses the term to make them feel like special insiders. And I love that. I love this idea of making your customers feel like special insiders, like they know what's going on behind the scenes in order to get them the products and services that they've signed up for, that you're rewarding them for their loyalty and you're keeping them up to date. And I think that That is such a powerful concept, this idea of managing expectations, of treating your customers like special insiders. I thought that was wonderful. I took that comment. I I sort of, like Maxi, I put a heart around that in the the margins. I I just love that idea of treating, just really asking yourself, how can we treat our customers like these special insiders? I think that's a great way of actually trying to make tangible how you love your customers. How about you, Max? Did something stand out to you in particular? Yeah, you know, you know the, how I've been really frustrated with customer experience for a while, right? We're, we're working, 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 or people are working, and it seems like we're not getting somewhere. And, and what really stood out to me is this: how Fred Reichelt embraces the idea of value for customers. That is the thing that a company is trying to maximize, and returns will follow. And that stood out to me because. I've been I've been thinking about this for a while and I've been writing research about this for a while and I do think that that's that is the next frontier for for CX going away from being thought as the people who improve experiences on the margins to the people who make sure that we understand who are the customers that we want to serve or that want to be served by us and how can we make their lives better how can we create the value that they're hoping to get from us and that as a call to action is, is just is awesome. And I think this is really good. This is something a customer experience people can take and, and put in front of them like a banner that, that that's our purpose, our mission. And that and if they end up putting their like like a, like a head against the wall many times, like maybe like a what was the bird called? Forgetting, doesn't matter. But like you're 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 hitting your head against the wall all the time in CX, right? So you need some kind of purpose that you're working towards. And this is a wonderful purpose. And the CX team is really well set out to help drive that mission forward. So that, that stood out to me. And it's kind of like, it's nicely, it's, uh, I think he, de- he dedicates an entire chapter to be humble right? Which I thought was really interesting as well. And it kind of ties to what you were just saying, Maxi, that, you know, as a CX professional, you know, we have to sort of nurture this relentless relentless learning and be humble that things are changing and they're adapting. And this is still a pretty new discipline. And so, you know, we have to continuously redefine what remarkable means to our customers. We have to continuously sort of make sure that we're advancing the metrics that we're using, that we're playing the long game. And so, yeah, this idea of being humble, but also indeed sort of, you know, don't 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 despair. <laughs> there are ways forward. There are ways forward. Right. <laughs> well, Maxi and John, thank you so much for coming on and giving your reviews of Winning on Purpose. You're welcome. It was our pleasure. Very happy to. Maxi and Joanna have current research that they will be sharing in upcoming episodes. So they will be back soon. 
Thanks everyone for joining again. The CX cast is brought to you by Forrester and this episode is produced by Wesley Patterson. Until next time. 